Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am the rabbi, Daniel Bogard. I'm the priest, Carl Stevens. And today we have a priest, a rabbi, and a cantor. Hi, I'm the cantor, Cantor Cheryl Wunsch. Uh, so Cheryl, I think some of our listeners probably will have no idea what a cantor is. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, um, on one foot, uh, cantor is a full member of the Jewish clergy with the same rights and responsibilities of a rabbi in terms of life cycle and funerals and weddings and pastoral care and teaching, etc., with a focus on the music of the synagogue. So... Can you tell us a little bit, why did you end up as a cantor? Um, I chose the cantorate because I feel like music is a powerful vehicle through which to do the work of a Jewish professional, of a Jewish clergy. It is one of the vehicles that I have at my disposal, but it was one that I felt particularly powerful and one that I wanted to, to focus on. So appropriate enough uh, that we have you joining us today because we are looking at Exodus chapter 15. So last week, Carl, or two weeks ago, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, we looked at 14, the telling of the uh, parting of the waters at the Red Sea. Uh, and this week we will take the very same event, but look at it in the second telling that it has uh, within the Torah. Uh, Whereas two weeks ago, we looked at it in prose in Exodus 15. We are looking at it in song. Uh, So Cheryl, what, what is the impact of song? How, how is that change how we experience whether we're talking about the same story here in Exodus 14 and 15, or whether we're talking about the experience of uh, worship within services. What, how do you think of music and its impact? I think music is the emotion behind the text. Um, I think we see that in the secular world as well. I think music can really uh, bring about feelings that may be repressed or you maybe didn't know that you even had, but when you hear a song, it can either be uh, bringing up a memory or it can be um, elucidating the text in a way that um, words themselves don't always do. Hmm. Nick, Carl, there's, am I correct that there's nothing like a cantor in the Episcopal tradition? There isn't, and I'm, I'm going to use this opportunity, Cheryl, to ask you all sorts of questions as we go on. Um, about about your ministry because I understand so to be a cantor is it is what we would call an order of ministry right is it uh, kind of parallel to being a rabbi absolutely okay um, yeah we don't so in the Episcopal Church we have different orders of ministry we have uh, bishops priests deacons and the laity uh, but we don't have any kind of parallel orders it's a it's always a hierarchy with us. Um, has, have cantors always been a kind of, uh, equal order or, or how, what is the history of the cantor? Um, so no, cantors haven't always been equal. Um, and that's actually, unfortunately, a stigma that still exists today that we are very actively trying to, trying to fix. Um, but for, for many years, the cantor was the synagogue musician, right? So they, typically traditionally men um, with beautiful voices and a good understanding of liturgy and were the service leaders and the worship leaders. Um, and the role grew and expanded. And um, now we 
have, you know, the same five-year master's program with ordination at the end as rabbis do. Um, but that was not always the case. Um, so if they were the worship leaders, does that mean that, that rabbis were essentially the what we would call formation leaders, like the, the teachers of the tradition and of the of the sacred text? Yeah. So rabbi just means teacher in the in the traditional um, translation. So so the rabbi and cantor may have led services together, but for the most part, in a very traditional uh, setting, the cantor would have led the service and the rabbi would have delivered the sermon. Okay. That... Yeah, that's that's um, fascinating. I think like I, I I think other Christians do something like that. Uh, I believe like Methodists have somebody called a liturgist uh, who arranges the liturgy. Um, so yeah, so Episcopalians are not. Um, we are not the only method of, of doing this of working collaboratively or um, with different orders of ministry. There is, you know, a lot of this, go ahead, oh, go ahead Cheryl. I was going to say there, there is, um, a cantor in one of the Christian churches. I unfortunately don't know which one because cantor is, it's not a Hebrew word, right? It's a, it's Latin right. it means singer. Right. Um, in Hebrew, it's a chazan, but we use the, we use the word cantor. So I do know that there are Christian cantors, but again, it's, it is the role of the, the singer, the worship leader, not the full clergy. Right. Yeah, it's a role that we would assign for just like the singing of a psalm, say. We, you know, we would ask who is going to be the cantor for this. And it could really be any member of the choir, um, or actually it could be clergy for that matter. But um, it's not, yeah. So that's how we tend to, to handle that. You know, a lot of this is also connected to the pro- professionalization of clergy within the Jewish world that's really only happened in the last 100, 150 years, uh, starting... Uh, sort of throughout Western Europe and moving into the United States. Uh, it used to be that sort of rabbi was frequently supported by the community, but wasn't a pastor in any meaningful way, right? Wasn't there for um, hospital visits and uh, the, the role that we normally think of as sort of being the prime responsibilities of clergy people. And it was really through the United States that we saw the rabbinic role professionalized and the cantorial role uh, highly professionalized uh, as well. Uh, and a lot of that's the influence of the churches around us. And actually, it's interesting. You can see it in today's Muslim American world. Uh, I've got a dear friend who's a priest. Uh, excuse me, not a priest. I, I, I do have a dear friend who's a priest, but uh, a <laughs> dear friend who's an imam. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, they're going through this too. He's had no training in anything that we would consider sort of pastoral care uh, because he comes from Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And that's not the role of an imam there. But here in the United States, it's radically changing. And I think we've seen something similar in the rabbinate and the cantorids. Fascinating. So uh, were rabbis before that point, um, were they kind of religious professionals who, who just concentrate on scholarship? Or were they people who had farms and shops and other things who just happened to, to read more, learn more, and teach more? Uh Oftentimes more the second than the first, particularly uh, with the classical rabbis uh, who actually had to work for a living uh, as opposed to us today. Uh Um, And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the other thing to understand about rabbi is, uh, and Cantor, we use the word ordained, but for all practical purposes, ordination for us is uh, 
in achievement of learning and not of special status. There's nothing that you need a rabbi for or a cantor for that a lay person couldn't do with very few exceptions. Wow. Right. Which So that makes sense of like at, up at Kenyon where I was chaplain for a while, the, the Hillel dr- uh, director was not a rabbi, um, but that never seemed to matter. So no, and that's exactly. Why okay. And then, um, what, I mean, what's so interesting to me about this is that in, you know, at least Episcopalians were starting to question um, whether having a, a I don't know, like full-time clergy is sustainable, really. You know, we have shrinking churches. We have mm-hmm. far few resources than we once did. And so there's a lot of talk about uh, bivocational clergy or uh, tent maker clergy, people who have some other profession who are out there um, doing that profession and then coming in to lead on, on Sunday morning. Huh. Huh. So... Ah, uh, American and, and Canadian religion, Western religion. What will Western happen to religion it? in the 21st century? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, shall we uh, jump back in time a few millennia and uh, look at <laughs> Exodus 15? Yes, let's do that. Since ostensibly that's why we're here. Uh, and Cheryl, you're going to chant a few verses for us at some point. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, yeah, will you chant the first verse here for us, and then we'll probably stop you and have you tell us a little bit about what is this chanting tradition. Sure. So just a, a little preface. The, what you're going to hear is a combination of two styles of chanting. One is um, based upon the trope, which we will speak about, I am sure, and one is a special melody for this particular portion, and they both happen within the first verse. So here you go. Hmm. Okay. Az Yashir Moshe, Uvene Israel, Et Hashira Hazot Ladonai, Bayomeru Lemor, Ashira Ladonai, Kigaoga, Susferu Havor, Oh, that was great. That was great. And you could really hear the change in the trope there. Absolutely. It is a, a very distinct difference. And um, do you want me to explain a little bit about trope? And Yeah, please. Yeah, please. please. Sure. So um, we have in the Torah, not the actual Torah scroll, but in the, the, the books of the Torah, um, a tradition in Yiddish called trope. Uh, why the Yiddish word is the one that lasted, I don't know, but oh, we're going to go with I've that. I've always wondered. Yeah. Um, it's Yiddish. Wait, so, so are you saying the word trope originally comes from Yiddish? The word trope in this context. Okay. Yeah, this is not trope like a literary trope. Totally different word. Okay. Okay. Good. Right. Good clarification. So um, these are special markings that were printed in the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible. And they are these little symbols. I call them dots and squiggles, um, but they're not really. They're, they're these, these little symbols that tell you what the text should sound like. Um, and there's lots of different traditions of what those sounds are based upon geography, as a lot of things in the Jewish world are different based upon, you know, which shtetl in Europe you're from or if you're Spartac or wherever in the world your your community is. Um, Spartac, for those who don't know, would be Middle Eastern Jews. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so these are little symbols that were added to the text um, for clarity. Actually, there's three functions of the trope. Um, one is the biggest one is the syntax. All right. So the the trope functions as punctuation. The Torah does not have punctuation in it. There's no no periods, no commas, no nothing. All right. It doesn't even have vowels in it. It doesn't even have vowels in it, um, uh-huh. which is which is fairly common for written Hebrew. But to not have punctuation is incredibly confusing. Right. As we all know, punctuation very drastically can change the the content, the meaning of a sentence. Right. Right. So the rabbis of old would debate and argue, what does this sentence mean? Is it really a comma here? Is it, you know, the, the meanings were so different based upon the interpretations that they had to codify it. Um, and once they finally came to decisions about what the text really meant and where the punctuation marks should be. Um, they added the trope as a way of making sure that when it's read, it's always read with the same appropriate meaning and intention. Um, now, of course, I'm simplifying this quite, quite a bit, but it really adds pauses and it adds connections, right? So there's certain trope that tell you by the sound and also just by studying it and knowing it that now's the time to take a break. There's certain trope that tell you, nope, now you need to move forward into the next word. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's different lengths of breaks and, and all of that. So, so one of, so the main function of trope is the syntax, right? Making sure that the meaning is clear. Um, the next function is the phonetics of it all of um, syllabification. Most often, syllabification. That's quite a word right there. Rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Um, most Hebrew words, the emphasis is on the final syllable, but just like everything in Hebrew, there are many exceptions to that rule. And so trope shows you where the emphasis should be on a certain word so that it's correct. Um, the trope marking is usually placed on the um, the the accented syllable of a word, so that mm-hmm. when you chant it, you are you are properly pronouncing the word as it's meant to be pronounced with the with the syllables. So, in, in to interrupt for one moment, those yeah. first two ideas that you talked about right there that it uh, helps you understand the punctuation and then it helps you understand where to pronounce it. I'll say that to be a reader of the Hebrew text, you also have to be a reader of the trope. Even if you have no idea how to chant it, even if you aren't musical, even in a little bit, you learn the trope itself because it helps with those two as well. And it's almost impossible to read the Hebrew text without it. Right. Okay. And that's actually something that is a, is a challenge for that I've found at least in, um, in Torah study classes, when you're working just with the text and not with the trope, um, especially when you're working with people and most, I would say, <laughs> Daniel, I'm sure you agree. Most of our congregants don't know the first thing about trope. It just has sure. been part of their, their education, which is fine. This is not a judgment by any means. Um, but to not 
it, it's very clear when someone is reading the text and they don't know that certain trope symbols mean, oh, you're supposed to pause here. Oh, this is the end of the sentence, whatever. Because it, it really does change the meaning. Mm-hmm. So finally, and um, this is probably the most obvious one of what trope does, is it gives music to the text, right? So it makes it, it makes it pleasant to listen to. Not that reading isn't pleasant, but um, reading can be monotonous at times, um, whereas singing is very rarely monotonous. It, it adds this musicality to it that, um, that makes it an enjoyable experience and makes it more dramatic and brings the text to life. So that's what trope does. So let's go and read the first verse in English. And then Cheryl, I think we'll have you, uh, if you're up for it, chant the first verse again for us. Um, so in English, then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and driver God has hurled into the sea. So we can hear in the English there that there's a distinction, right? We've got the introduction to the song and then we have the beginning of the song itself. And that I believe is where you change the melody. Uh, so will you go ahead and chant that for us one more time uh, so that people can sort of listen to where the song at the sea begins and where the introduction ends. Sure. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So beautiful. Okay. Shall we dive into our text? Let's do it. Sure. Uh, okay, Carl, you want to read for us? Oh, uh, well, sure. I, I, now I feel like I can never possibly compete. Uh, Not a competition, Carl, my mind? friend. <laughs> would you mind chanting for us, Carl? <laughs> oh, sure. My musicality will come out. Um, Okay, so then Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he hath thrown into the sea. Do you want me to keep reading beyond that? Keep going. Okay. The Lord is my strength and my might, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. So we've actually got a, uh, uh, softening of the text here. Adonai Ish Milchama. God is a man of war. Ha uh-huh. ha. Uh, right. I mean, I think it's even stronger than warrior in that sense. Right. Um, right. Ish Milchama. We've got a different image of God than we've had before. Yep. Uh, what's that about here? Any thoughts? Well, I mean, I, one view might be that the Israelites' perception of God is changing depending on their need in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is not only of, about the Pharaoh's army chasing after them. This is about all the coming battles they're going to have as they make their way through the wilderness. So the God who is their rescuer and their redeemer from slavery now needs to become something else for them, needs to protect the freedom that they've earned or that they've they've uh, been given by 
de- defending them, uh, sometimes violently against violent people. I, this always makes me uncomfortable. And this is actually part of the daily morning liturgy. We read this whole section uh-huh. uh, right. every day. Uh, and this whole warrior God, God of war, God of fighting, um, it's uncomfortable to me. Um, yeah, I would say it's uncomfortable to me as well. I, um, but I, I can understand. So I'm wondering, like, um, as Jews, do you feel like this, uh, this has something to do with Zionism? Is that part of what makes you uncomfortable? Is this kind of idea that we were liberated from the Holocaust and now we need to defend and fight? Oh, interesting. Wow. Cut into the quick right there. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I guess I will say, and Cheryl, I'd really be interested in your thoughts on this too. Uh, we haven't had another Jewish professional to gang up on Carl here before. So this <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I think that there is broadly in the Jewish world, a discomfort with both the reality and the perception of Jewish power Hmm. that for thousands of years we got used to powerlessness and there is a certain moral purity that exists in powerlessness. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right. You can have all sorts of expectations for how people with power should behave when you don't actually have power. Um, And so there, there is on the one hand, both a discomfort that I think uh, many Jews, particularly American Jews have with the idea that today there is such a thing as Jewish power, a sense of uh, uh, a Jewish sovereign state, uh, mm-hmm. and at the same time, a deep pride in that Jewish power, uh, particularly because of the lack of it for thousands of years. Uh, so, yeah, I think you're, you might be onto something there. Cheryl, you have any thoughts? Well, I had, um, I had never made a Holocaust connection here. Um, that's not typically where my mind goes in this in this portion. Um, this is challenging for me on a, a sort of a broad level because I personally don't, um, I don't subscribe to the, the notion of, of a God that is active in this way. Um, which, which makes Genesis and Exodus particularly challenging for me, um, in general. Um, but I think of this this part, um, I sort of equate it to um, military uh, drills. I, I'm using the wrong word. I have know nothing about the military, but the, those the the chanting that you see people who are walking down their bases. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. What's that, that called? I don't know, but yeah, I've been that. told. Okay. Yeah, uh-huh. so, right? yeah. And those chants... o- only know it from films, but right. yeah. okay. But that's exactly <laughs> what it, right. So that's that's a real thing, uh-huh. and. And I, and to me, that's a, that's bravado, that's necessary bravado, right? Like it's a way of pumping yourselves up for the challenge that is coming. So whether you really believe that your strength is coming from God or your strength is coming from, uh, from yourself or whatever, right? Everyone has their own concept of that. This marching into the sea, chanting about how, you know, God is a man of war and has triumphed gloriously. It is an attempt, uh, I believe, on the part of the Israelites to pump themselves up for this mm-hmm. huge challenge that's right in front of them, like walking through mm. 
giant body of water, right? And everything. That was really helpful. I've I've never thought of it that way. Yeah. I like that a lot. Um, and I should say my, my Holocaust question really comes from this discussion I had with a, a Jewish professor once who thought my pacifism was ridiculous. And I think that was part of his reasoning, right? It was like, interesting. Your pacifism did us no good or would have done us no good you yeah. know, 40 years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So the Jewish people are trying to pump themselves up, or the Hebrews are, as they uh, cross the Red Sea, not only because they know they're being pursued by the Israelites, but also because they have some uh, inkling of the conflicts to come. We actually have a midrash here that I think sort of goes along with Cheryl's point, uh, comes from the Talmud, where there's this debate amongst the rabbis of how the song itself was sung. Uh, And one of the opinions here is that it is a direct back and forth. Moses sings a line, everyone repeats. Moses sings a line, everyone repeats, just like that sort of military drill. Right. Uh, you know, when I read that Midrash, uh, of course, it, it, made it immediately made me think of the way that we sing psalms um, on every Sunday, really, where you can have a, a antiphon and verses, um, which is kind of the first way, first the way the first rabbi describes this happening. Um, or you can have everybody sing together, or you can have people, you know, like the cantor sing uh, two verses and then everybody else sing two verses, but we almost never do a direct, you know, I don't know, but I've been told, <laughs> uh, repetition. Well, repetition takes too long. Let's, let's be honest here. Right. Well, right. But also it may just be seen as militaristic. I never thought oh, of that angle, but that, you know, that's a possibility. That might be why we don't do it. Huh. Do Do you do that Cheryl when you are canting? Is there that kind of direct, there okay, so there are some texts, there are some liturgy that are um written as call and response. There's there's certain parts of the, the service that are, are not repeat after me, but there's I have my line and then the congregation has their line, and then I have my line and the congregation, which is a tradition that has sadly sort of fallen by the wayside in many progressive congregations. Um for the beautiful reason that everyone likes to sing everything. Um uh-huh. but it does lose some of the the intentional meaning. The only time I ever do a true repeat after me is if I'm teaching something. Um, but I actually really like looking at this um, at this text here, what Rabbi Akiva says that it wasn't a repeat after me, but it was a true call and response, right? Whereas Moses would say one thing and then the people would respond, I will sing to God. And then Moses would say the next line and they would still say, I will sing to God, which is definitely something that we have in our Psalms and in our liturgy where, you know, right? Where there's these certain lines that the whole congregation will say, the, the service leader will read a paragraph and then the whole congregation will say this one line and then um, mm-hmm. it continues like that. So I kind of like that imagery. Yeah, I do too. Uh, Like I said, that's something that we do as well. So, yeah. I sort of liked Rabbi Nehemiah. Uh, He says, Moses sang the opening words of the song after which everyone mumbled on their own. (laughs) Mumbled. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Uh, Okay. Shall we keep going? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You want me to keep reading? Please. Okay. Uh, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. He 
His picked officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. So let's um, pause there for a moment. Yeah, I agree. Uh-huh. Uh, so we've got a rhythm like music here too. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, we're not telling a story in the same way. We're repeating tropes, but not tropes as you <laughs> a different kind of trope. Yeah. <laughs> Literary tropes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're retelling the story. Uh, and actually many scholars think that the song at the sea might be one of the oldest pieces of the Hebrew Bible. Mm. Uh, both in terms of, you can see it with its theology uh, it seems to sort of have an older piece, but also it is the role of song in a poem, uh, that it is a way of preserving texts in an oral tradition, uh, in a way that prose is not preserved. Right. Right. So, uh, and that also accounts for the repetition of themes that go on, uh, is that this is people trying to remember to make sure they remember <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so when I, I, I went to, uh, one of our churches here in Columbus and a rabbi, Rabbi Benji, uh, came and showed us a portion of Torah scroll. And this was, uh, laid out in a very particular manner, like visually laid out. Uh, can you tell me a little bit? I mean, he, he said that um, it's almost laid out like the sea, you know, where some of the text is parted to the left and to the right, and some, some of the text marches down the, the middle. That's exactly right. Um, so it's laid out differently in the text for, for two reasons. And I'm going to pull up a picture of this that we can yeah. uh, post on the website. So uh, any listeners who want to, uh, we'll have a link to that. Mm-hmm. So, so most of the Torah is written, you know, paragraph style, right? And it's written in these columns, these very, very uh, narrow columns that have sort of sharp edges. They're very neatly written for the most part. Um, and every so often there's a paragraph break, but sometimes there isn't, and you just sort of have to find your spot. But this portion. Um, along with one or two others is very, very easy to find because it looks different than everything else. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons it looks different is because it's poetry, right? And even in our English books, poetry and prose are written visually differently, right? Right. You write the poetry so that you can read it in the proper rhythm, um, whereas you don't need that in prose. So that's one of the things. It's just, it's just written like that because it's a poem. But it's not written in these sort of short little lines that help you to, to read the poem in rhythm. It's written in these three, it looks like three little columns um, that are separated by big chunks of white space. It's actually very and difficult to read in the daily liturgy. I mean, it, it's <laughs> to work, yeah. you can't do it quickly. Right, because there's these big breaks in the lines um, that almost look like, do you remember um, before we had really advanced word processors and you would have to press enter to get to the next line 
Uh-huh. Right. Yep. And then but then you would go to print it out and there would be these big gaps on your lines because it didn't format properly. Like it almost looks like it wasn't formatted properly, but it was. This is obviously intentional, but there's sort of these these tab breaks in between the lines. Um, and one of the one of the ideas behind it is that if you look at it, it looks like the two walls of water on the side and the words in the middle are the Israelites walking through the water. Um, I don't know if that was intentional, but it's I can beautiful totally see and I it. love it. Yeah. Right? I never thought of it that way. Yeah, I'm looking yeah. at it right now. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of like concrete poetry, you know, this this poetry of the 20th century, which was trying to make shapes on the page. Sure. Yeah. Um yeah, that, I mean, I think I think it's really cool, <laughs> um, just the way it looks, the way it's laid out. And it's also, I think, in the Torah, like I said, it's it can be really hard to find where the next part is supposed to start and 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 where you're supposed to start reading. But this one is really, really obvious. This and the the Ten Commandments also very, very obvious. And I sometimes wonder if that is telling us something about the importance. Uh-huh. Uh, these particular passages because you can find them without without trouble whatsoever you know exactly where they are yeah i'm sure it must be intentional and meant to to draw the eye to bring people to those texts over and over again right well shall we keep going uh sure uh, okay so we pause because it's about to change uh from Referring to God in the third person to speaking directly to God. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it does that in the Hebrew too, I take it. It's not just and Cheryl, that. if there's any of these places that you think uh, it makes sense to jump in with a little chanting, uh, don't be shy. Well, yeah. So so exactly what you were saying. Um, now, before, before I even go into this, I just want to make it clear that the melody that I use is just one of, of many. Um, when I lived oh, in England. There was an entirely different melody for for the Song of the Sea um, that I actually never learned because I had a congregant who did it so beautifully and and she did it for me. Um, but so different traditions have different melodies and some of them just sing through the entire portion. Um, our tradition in our movement is that certain verses are chanted with the trope and certain verses are chanted with the melody. And the distinction. So just to remind you, trope is the standard and the melody would be the special song for the C. Yes. Thank you. Um, the, the distinction is, is both what you were saying about third person, um, referring to God versus actually talking about God in, in that, in that more direct way, but also the verses that mention God's name in this for the most part, um, are sung in the special melody as opposed to the the more narration parts, which are are in the trope. It's not, it's not completely accurate across the board, but that's sort of the idea. Hmm. So is it like the, te- so uh, the other thing this rabbi said was that when scribes are creating a, a Torah scroll, if they um, mess up the word of God while they're, writing the scroll, they have to go back to the beginning and start again. Uh, is that also true when singing it? Like if you, if you <laughs> slip up 
Do you have to start the whole song? Um, so, so just to clarify, if they do mess up on the name of God, they have to start the page again. They don't have to start the whole the page Torah again. About a year to write a Torah scroll. So yeah, we'll I, I definitely thought that as well until I actually um, we had I spoke with a scribe who was giving a, a really beautiful teach about about how it works and and the, the pages uh-huh. are hand sewn together and she said yeah no you just have to redo the whole page which can be a lot because okay. a page can have you know columns and columns and hundreds of words so if you make a mistake while you're chanting you fix the mistake it is really how it goes we try for accuracy in the text accuracy in the melody is not as important because the melody is there to serve the text Right. So so we want to make sure we're pronouncing the words and saying the words correctly. And that is most often, you know, if I'm uh, we we have a position called a called a gabi, which is the person who sort of supports the Torah reader and follows along to make sure that they don't get stuck or they, you know, don't make any mistakes. So if I'm serving as gabi for somebody else who's reading Torah, I don't correct them on their chanting unless I know it's going to really throw them off down the line. For the most part, if they make a mistake in the chanting, I don't worry so much about it. If they make a mistake with the text, then we want to make sure that that's accurate. We should say it's actually okay. even more challenging than it sounds to do this job. Uh, because when you go up for the formal chanting of the Torah in the synagogue, uh, you're reading directly from the Torah scroll itself, which does not have any of the vowels in it and does not have the trope uh-huh. markers. So you have to have memorized the vocalization as well as the trope markers for every word and every sentence. Right. Cool. All right. I, just so I get the mechanics right. Um, does the Gabi point with the Yod? Is that? Yod. Okay. Well, they're standing there. Yod. Sorry. Yeah. So the person the who's reading right. the Torah holds the Yod and the Yod is really just um, a pointer, a way of making sure that we're not smudging our greasy hands on the on the ink, right? So, okay. so you use the the yad as a pointer to keep yourself um, on the right word, so you don't get lost. The the gabai, uh-huh. the person who's standing next to them, will have an actual book of the Torah in front of them that has the trope and has the vowels, so they can make sure that there's oh, accuracy. Oh, okay, that is interesting. Okay. There we go. Thank you. I'm glad I asked because I would have I would have misinterpreted. Gabbai's and Torah readers develop a very close relationship, and in fact, I've seen uh, some who do it every week together, and it's clear that the Torah reader has no idea what uh, uh, what trope is coming next, and the Gabbai sits there and signs each of the tropes beforehand. Um, so there all sorts of elaborate things are developed. Wait a minute. So there are hand signals. <laughs> I, I have seen this at uh, yeah. an Orthodox congregation. Yeah. This does exist. I actually, I did not ever learn um, the hand signs, but but it is a thing. It's not as common anymore, but there was a system of, of hand signals that helped you to learn the trope and to know what was coming next. And it's fascinating and beautiful, and it's on my list of things to learn eventually. <laughs> that is amazing. Okay. Well, I feel like we've gone far off, but um, (laughs) my original question, uh, Cheryl, really was, yeah, no doubt. Um, Does, uh, so, so is the, I'm going to get the raw, this wrong, but do the trope or the melody change when the direct, when, when you refer to God 
in the in the directly rather than in the third person? Um, so in the Torah in general, no. In this portion, in the Song of the Sea, um, the the special melody is sung um, on, in the verses where you are speaking to God, right? Your right hand, eternal one, glories and power. That verse is going to be sung in this special melody as opposed to the, the traditional trope, which is more of a, a narration than, than a song. Hmm. Hmm. So can we hear it now? Are you, could you sing it? Uh, sure. So um, why don't I back up a little bit so you can again, hear the difference. Yeah. Um, should I start around verse four, verse five? What do you think? Sounds good. Okay. I'll start at verse four. So this is where we're saying Pharaoh's chariots and his army. God has cast into the sea. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, you can really hear that difference. Right. So in the in the first part, in the regular trope, you can hear it it's also a, a, a different voice production, right? So the so trope is is chanting. Trope is speaking on tone as a way of moving the text forward or pausing or or making it come alive singing mm-hmm. the, the the actual song part is a, is a song and and you sing it as opposed to chanting it um and it's a it's a real big distinction i believe yeah yeah uh we we do something a little bit similar in that we have tones which you can act, you can sing the scripture in, like you could sing the gospel uh, very, very few people ever do it. Uh, and then we have psalm tones. I think we have seven <laughs> psalm tones, uh, which the psalms can be sung in. So, okay, well, that is amazing. Let me, let me read it. I'm looking, we've been recording now for 42 minutes. So <laughs> I think we should probably pick up our pace, but I'm glad we lingered over that. Um, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You sent out your fury and consumed them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. So I think we have to take this as poetry, right? I mean, it's so theologically problematic if we don't. But if we think of it just as poetry and imagery and art rather than philosophy or ideas. I, I think it really changes the perception of this. Uh, it's problematic because of the violence or because God is uh, becoming a nature. God has God. nostrils. I mean, you, you, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. That, that's what I want to make sure of. Right. Suddenly God seems like a Renaissance painting of Neptune or yeah. something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Let's keep going. Okay. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. So, 
Cheryl, can we ask you to sing this next verse, verse 11, which is one of the classic pieces of Jewish liturgy, Micha Mocha. Absolutely. Micha Mocha Baili Maronai, Micha Mocha Nezar Bakodesh, Nora Tehilot so this is part of a Jewish liturgy called the uh, the redemption, the Geulah, uh, which is the turn from the very personal, introspective part of the liturgy of the Shema into the more universal in political uh, prayers of um, ways that we want to change the world. Uh, and this mm-hmm. is the piece that goes in between. Okay, so this is the bridge. This is the bridge. <laughs> Um, and, and what, what do you make about it being who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Yeah. You know, I, when I teach, uh, uh, in an academic setting, I, I taught for five years at Bradley university, uh, Hebrew Bible. This is one of the texts we use to show, uh, how the Hebrew Bible really, I don't think should be understood as having a belief in God, but mm-hmm. instead can be seen as being a record of the changing relationship between God and the Israelites and also the changing imagination of the Jews for how we, how we view our God. Uh, so this is, uh, uh, this falls into a category we call henotheism, uh, uh, or monolatry, uh, which is the notion that it's not denying that there are other gods. It's simply saying that our God is the biggest of them. Uh, I like to call this, uh, uh, playground theology. Uh, my God can beat up your God. Uh, yeah. Well, you just taught me two new words I'd never heard before. Henotheism and m- monolatry. The they mean almost the same thing. <laughs> monolatry. Wow. Okay. Um, I like to think of this too as um, showing that the Israelites were aware of their surroundings, and and that's something that we see time and time again in the Bible. That wherever they go, they attempt to fit in with um, with the culture around them. Right. And sometimes to the benefit and sometimes to their detriment. But the fact that there is an awareness that where they are coming from, the place that they have been living for so many years, um, is a, is a place that worships multiple gods. And, um, and that's what they do. And we're not saying that that's not a thing that doesn't exist in the world. Uh, we don't close our eyes to it. We know that it exists and that's okay, but this is what we're choosing. And, and, and exactly as Daniel said, our God's better than that. So, but it's cool that you guys have all your gods. It's fine. (laughs) Right. But it would not be cool for, for Jews as when we get to the prophets and we, we get to, uh, first and second king. I think Elijah would have something to say about it. Right. So, so there's a kind of, we need, um, to set the boundaries for our own belief, but we don't need to require other people to fall in line with that. So don't um, forget the first commandment. Yes. Thou shalt love the Lord. And you God. shall have no other gods before me. Right. Right. Oh, interesting. It's not, so not, there are no other gods, but none of them get. Exactly. Uh, I'm going to be your main squeeze, but you can still date around a little bit if you want to. <laughs> 
<laughs> that you know, we do not understand it that way anymore. No, no neither really neither, neither does the Jewish world, certainly. Yeah. We we don't either, but we you know, and we have this this idea of of one God, right? We always say that the 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 watchword of our faith is is hero Israel Adonai is our God Adonai is one but we can we don't have to think of it as one being one and only we can think of it as one being unity of right so so there is all of the powerful beautiful forces in the world can be unified under the the grand title of God um, which might not be a popular opinion amongst some of my, my Jewish friends, but I, I, I think that we can't, as soon as we start saying there is one God, then we start to anthropomorphize God, right? And we think about the man in the clouds, right? Right. And, and what we're really saying secretly is our understanding of God is the only one that counts. Um, <laughs> whereas if, if we're humble, what we say is our understanding of God is deeply limited. And therefore, we're not going to go around insisting upon it because God may show us a different uh, a different understanding at any time, sure. and we need to be open. Sure, but I, I will say, and, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I genuinely believe that if I was standing at the edge of a great sea and the waters parted just randomly, I'd be a little hesitant to walk in. But if someone said, "Oh no, God blew that open for you," I'd probably feel a little bit more comfortable mm-hmm. about it. With enormous hmm. nostrils. With enormous nostrils. Well, say a little bit more about that, Cheryl. So what you're saying is kind of God is beyond our understanding, but we need to place our understanding. I mean, we need to exercise our understanding in order really to do anything in the world, right? So we we need to walk this line between uh, humility and uh, and the understanding that allows us to be active. Sure. And, you know, it's, there's the, the old Jewish, um, story that you should always keep two pieces of paper in your pockets. Do you know this one? No, so not at all. one pocket and Daniel, please correct me. I always get the words wrong, but one pocket, the piece of paper should say this world was made for me. And in the other pocket, the piece of paper should say, I am nothing but dust and ashes. Um, Right. Huh. So when you're feeling as if you are in control of the whole world, you should look at the paper that says I am nothing but dust and ashes. And when you're feeling like you can't do anything, you should look at the piece of paper that says this world was created for me. Um, and I think the same goes with how we conceptualize God, right? Um, God doesn't have, in my opinion, ultimate control over every moment of our lives, but neither does God not exist in our lives either, right? Um, and and you have to find that balance. And I think, again, with the whole nostril thing, we go back to the idea of the Israelites are the ones saying this, right? No one's telling them, um, hey, look, you know, God isn't the one speaking here. God didn't say, I blew the sea open for you. The Israelites are saying it. And this is the same thing, mm-hmm. again, with that pumping themselves up like here we go god did this for us let's go we can get through it we're we're here we're in this together and we've got this protection because if they didn't think that there was that kind of protection if they believed that it was just them i don't think they would have been able to to get go through with it right yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been sitting here grinning from ear to ear because I find this the most beautiful, um, description of kind of our, 
our religious need in life that uh, that I've encountered. And uh, thank you so much for that, Cheryl. That's a beautiful thing to consider. Those two pieces of paper and, and one in each pocket. Um, okay, so when we get to 13, then, are we going to have a completely different melody or a different trope? Um, so around 13, actually, uh, most often, um, I wouldn't say everyone, but most often, especially in reform communities, we kind of stop the the public chanting after Micha Mocha because it's the, the, the verse that I just chanted, um, because it's well known and people know it and it, it sort of is a, is a good stopping place. The rest of the song is more in trope than it is in the special melody, although the special melody does come in a little bit. Um, but it's it it becomes a little bit more um uh, narration um i'm not as familiar with it to be honest i know a couple places where the special melody comes in um it's something that i have studied but not in a number of years it it does end i can tell you you know the the last time that the special melody comes in is nearing the end of the song when um miriam and the women get their um, get their moment, so, and they they also sing the song at the end. Why don't we go ahead and read uh, up until Miriam, and then uh, uh, maybe have you chant again if you don't mind? Sure. Yeah, I think that's great. I I almost want to skip ahead. <laughs> I'm so excited about Miriam, but anyway, it's only two lines. Uh, the, the women don't get much. Uh, it, right, but it's also the first time Miriam gets named and gets to speak. Well, it's actually it the Exodus? first time in the entire Torah where you hear of women taking any kind of active role in worship. Huh. Um, there's a lot of firsts that happen in this portion. I don't know um, if you want to get into them, but I can just list them quickly if you'd please. like. Um, yes, so please. The, in this portion, we hear, you know, very shortly after the song, we get our very first commandment regarding the Sabbath. Um, and it's a, it's about collecting manna and the double portion of manna the day before the Sabbath so you, that you don't have to do any work on the Sabbath. But it's the very first time in the entire Torah where we get a commandment regarding the Sabbath. So we'll get that and next because, week, listeners. There you go. So mm-hmm. because of that... Um, the, the mystics, the Kabbalists call the Shabbat on which we read this particular portion. They call it sort of the, um, the spiritual basis for all Shabbats throughout the year. Um, but the other two firsts that we get in this is it is the, like I already said, the first time that we have a woman taking any kind of active role in, um, in leading of the group and especially in worship. And it is the very first time in the Torah that we hear of song being used in worship. Up until this point, it's either been personal prayers or discussions with God or poems potentially, but this is the very first time that there's any kind of singing of, of our worship. Well, and in fact, the, the Shabbat that, uh, this is sung gets a special name. Uh, it, it becomes Shabbat Shira, the, the Shabbat of the song. Um, so every year there's a special one in all sorts of communities actually, uh, throughout the world will have particularly musical worship on that day. Huh? Right. That's Okay. Well, uh, there's so much to say, and and yet we're probably limited in our time. So I'm just going to read through up until the song of Miriam, and then Cheryl, you'll sing it, and then we can we can discuss a little bit further. 
verse 13, in your steadfast, steadfast love, you led the people whom you redeemed. You guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples heard, they trembled, pang, seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed, trembling, seized the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan melted away. Terror and dread fell upon them. By the might of your arm, they became still as a stone until your people, O Lord, passed by, until the people whom you acquired passed by. You brought them in and planted them on the mountain of your own possession, the place, O Lord, that you made your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When the force, oh, sorry, when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his chariot drivers went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing, and Miriam sang to them, that is just so beautiful. Oh, <laughs> uh, in English, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, horse and rider he hath thrown into the sea. Um, so, Daniel, we have a little midrash about the tambourines, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, and this is actually one of the themes uh, that we found in our midrashim so far. Uh, there's a midrash. They, the question arises, where the heck did they get these tambourines from? Uh, right, as they were fleeing into the desert so quickly that they didn't even have time to let their uh, uh, bread rise. Uh, but they did have time to grab their tambourines. Uh and so what the Midrash says is uh, that the righteous women of that generation were certain that there would be miracles performed for them. And so they prepared tambourines and dances while still in Egypt. Uh, and this is, this is a theme we get over and over again, uh, where it is the over and over again in the Midrash, I should say, uh, that it is the righteous women of the community that ultimately, uh, are the ones who cause salvation. Well, so to add to that a little bit, I think this is also another case of, um, the Israelites doing what was normal for where they were. And in that region at the time, um, women were, they, they were the drummers. They were the, the tempo keepers huh. of, of the culture, huh. right? So, so one translation doesn't have it translated as tambourines. They have it translated as timbrels, which could just be a hand drum. Um, and so this is when I think about, again, this whole military thing, everything keeping in step and, and also, um, dragon boat racing where you have all of the, the people rowing, but you also have the person who's banging the drum to keep everyone, um, beating, rowing at the same hmm. tempo. And so the, the women in, um, in ancient Egypt would have been the ones who kept 
when, when there was work to be done or anything that had to be done at a, at a particular pace, the women's were, women were the drummers. So if that was sort of their, their de facto occupation at the time, no wonder they brought them with them. And they could have been using the timbrels the whole time as a way of marching through the sea to keep everyone huh. together. Huh. Amazing. I'd never heard that. <laughs> I love it though. What an, what an image it creates. It's fantastic. Uh, Okay, shall we uh, uh, read these last few verses here? And we we have totally left the song now. Do you want to take it? Uh, We've entered into narrative. So we're at verse 23. They came to Marah, uh, which, and this is going to be a play on that word, because in Hebrew that word is related to uh, the word for bitter. Uh, But they could not drink the waters of Marah because it was bitter. And that is why they named it Marah. The people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Right. These are the famous complaints. And actually there's a a Hasidic commentary from the previous verse that says, why is it that the water tasted bitter to them? Because they were bitter inside. And so everything tasted bitter to them. Yeah. I love that. I love that. How often is that true? Right. Um, Right. But it, given what you just said, Cheryl, we have then, uh, this picture of balance, right? We have these women who are so hopeful that they're preparing their, their drums and their performance ahead of time. Maybe that was from the Midrash. Um, and then we have these people who are bitter. Uh, this is yeah. a very mixed community. Yeah. We, we're getting texture. Sure. I mean, yeah. And, and you've been a slave for however many years and now you have the possibility of freedom. You're going to have some mixed feelings, right? It, it, it's not just joy. There is some fear and trepidation and sure bitterness um, for everything that you've had to accomplish. And, and this is one of the reasons why later on in the text, we find out that, the, and sorry if I'm, you know, spoiler alert here, we find out that the generation that were slaves in Egypt were not permitted to enter the land of Israel because God didn't want any of that lasting bitterness and and servitude and and attitudes of a slave to to come into the the new land so so yeah no kidding they were bitter (laughs) now that you've given away the ending i don't think i need to read the rest of this book perfect oh you're done that's it there's nothing left no but but it's the same idea right because if the water tasted bitter because they were bitter then the land of israel was not going to be sweet it was still going uh, to have some bitterness inside so they had to they had to weed that's that out that's beautiful they had to prepare their pallets for milk there you and go honey. And a nice connection to the story huh. of the spies okay. too there yeah exactly yep totally uh 25 you, you want to finish us in? uh okay moses cried out to the lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and an ordinance. There he put them to the test. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give heed to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. 
So they actually don't have the statutes yet, right? Because Cheryl, as you were saying, the Sabbath does not get mentioned in this, what we would call chapter. It does get mentioned in the Torah portion, but just a little further on. Um, so what God is basically saying to them is, trust me. Keep trusting me. You know, this is a, a relationship of trust. Uh, you don't necessarily need to know yet what those statutes are going to be. Uh, what's what's central is the relationship, and you need to trust me that those statutes will help so you. you. You know, I never thought of it, but the, it's an odd place to have a chapter ending, right? In many senses, <laughs> it probably would make more sense to uh, have the chapter end after the song. Right? What does this really have to do with that? Right. And yet uh, the chapter itself becomes the image of now they are on dry ground. Right. They have crossed through mm. and we are sitting on the dry ground and now we're dealing with the reality. Uh, right. Okay. We've left slavery. We've had the miracle, but where are we going to get water from? How are we going to survive tomorrow? What does freedom look like? And do we know how to be free? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe more of that for next week. I think so. I think this is going to be one of the themes that is just rising up as we go forward. Um, well, Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us. You added so pleasure. much. Thanks for, for having me. Yeah, it was totally delightful. Um, Cheryl, where can people find you or follow you? Do you have a web presence that we can drive? Uh, people sure. To? I have a website. It's cantorcherylwunsch.com. Cheryl with a C and Wunsch shockingly is exactly how it sounds. There's no extra S's or E's or anything. It's just lunch with a W. So Cantor Cheryl lunch.com. <laughs> okay. Lunch with a W. I like um, it. <laughs> so I will say that lost in the wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus is produced by Daniel Bogard and Carl Stevens. And is made possible by Christchurch cathedral and the diocese of Southern Ohio. Uh, it's part of, Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, Cheryl already said where you can find her online. You can find me at prayerbookart.com. Daniel, what do you want to plug? Uh, you can find my new column, my monthly column for myjewishlearning.com. Really? Oh, that's so exciting. Uh, what is the first column out? Uh, it's out. Wonderful. Okay, well, I'm going to go read it. Uh, Cheryl, once again, thank you so much. It's, it's, it was incredible. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. All right. Goodbye, dear listeners. Goodbye. Thank you, Cheryl. Bye.